Welcome to Afterthoughts, a podcast from Christ Fellowship in Cherrydale Church in Greenville, South Carolina, where we are uh, trying to unpack and dig into the weekly teaching and uh, sermons and other topical things that come up around the church to help you make application for uh, how can we how can we do something with this from Monday to Saturday. Uh, I am uh, Pastor Brandon. Joined today by Pastors Matt and Hugh, and uh, we want to dig into the sermon that Hugh preached this past Sunday on uh, Luke 4 and talk about belief. So uh, in in the passage, there were, uh, Hugh, you broke down three categories of kind of people or beings who are interacting with Jesus and believing in different ways. What, what were those three categories just so we can kind of get the, the jump here? Yeah. So I tried to look at the passage from the points of view of the demons of the crowds and of those needing healing, be it from uh, demon exorcism or uh, healing from disease. And then I was asking questions of each of those groups. How did they engage with Jesus? What did they know? And then how are we tempted to be like them? Yeah, awesome. So in, in those three categories, let's start with the, the demons. Um, how, how do demons believe in Jesus? Yeah, it's a, uh, that's a, a good question there. Uh, James 2 uh, says, you believe God's one, great. Even the demons believe and they shudder. So there's, uh, and even in our, our Luke passage, there's the, the, the image of fear in the demons. They, they're asking Jesus, if you come to, to destroy us, is our time done? And so it, it seems to me that belief is just an acknowledgement of the facts. Yeah. When you said fear and, and belief, it made me think of, uh, in the last time we talked, we talked a lot about like upbringing youth group experience and like how we were taught to believe and, and interact with God. And it's like, there was a lot of fear mixed in that. Like, can we separate out maybe a little bit of like good fear if there's such a thing uh, of God and demon fear, like bad fear of God? Yeah. Um, I, you know, it's funny to talk about youth groups because I, re- I recall uh, like a summer beach camp. And this, so this would have been late nineties. The cool gear that everybody was wearing was the brand no fear. Right. Oh, so it's like yeah. <laughs> you, you're just extreme, right? Like you're, uh, whether you're surfing or mountain biking or rock climbing, whatever, no, going to middle school, no fear. <laughs> and so, uh, the guy, he, that he was leading the the teaching all, all week. He said, no, no, we're going to get, we're going to get rid of that, that saying no fear is all wrong because we do have to fear God. He said a better way to look at it is no trepidation. I'm like, okay, great. Oh, nice. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Bunch of, uh, single brain celled 13 year olds, like uh, trepidation. And so that's what he, he attempted to do that whole week is tease out the difference between um, what it looks like to fear God versus being fearful of of man, and um, I think in in the one case, fear of God is kind of a a right posture is how I would think about it. 
uh, respect and awe of his authority and his person, whereas trepidation uh, and the kind of fear modeled by the demons in the text is really like, what about me? What am I going to lose? My own uh, good is kind of on the line is how I see it. So I'll take a stab. We were um, coming. I was in New York City this past week. and We're flying back from LaGuardia. We get through the security. So there's 30 college students, and uh, you know the the uh, you make it through the scanner, and then your bag gets uh, you know kicked into uh, quarantine to be to be checked. And so, um, what set off the alarm for the group? And there were five or six students. What were their Bibles? Right. So I guess the size of the Bible was unusual for the checked bag. And so they you know, thought there was some uh, device in there. So the ladies, you know, rummaging through their Bibles and, you know, makes these kind of quirky comments of, I guess that's a good book to have, particularly if you're going to fly. Right. You want to have the Bible with you. And so I'm thinking <laughs> like almost fear as this like mystical karma-esque it's hey, the rabbit foot i get god yeah. on my side i don't want god not on my side but god is kind of this ill-defined sloppy deity that i don't have really any categories for but i would say things like church bible the various words or something that i need to to hold carefully because if i get him uh, if, if, if he goes against me, then bad things are going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I want to stack the deck in my favor in a sense. So thinking about the demons and their fear of God, like in a, a day to day, like, I feel like it's the, it is kind of middle schooly with, uh, well, how, how much can I do or not do before God's going to like drop the hammer on me? Like when, when is, when is this going to be, when's the other shoe going to drop rather than, um, you know, as we look in these other categories, particularly where we, where we hope to be the, the ones coming for healing, the ones who are experiencing Jesus firsthand and believing, man, you, you can do things that others can't, that you are here to give and to care and to love and to seek and to save, um, rather than to smash those who are coming in, in weakness, um, that we want to, we want to move away from that. So that, that would be a red flag, I guess. Yeah. What don't you think like there's there's kind of the immature version of that where the the thinking is how much can I do before I get smashed by God? Maybe um, that same line of thinking that's a little bit matured, a little bit seasoned by some suffering looks like um, just acknowledging and assessing the pain and difficulty and the crisis of my life. And then the thought is, what have I done hmm. that has resulted in this? Like, why is God punishing me with these circumstances, be it difficulty in whatever disease, uh, financial crisis? Like, what did I do wrong? It, it seems like there's a, there's some there's some connection between that immature line of thinking that that then translates as a as an older believer. I think the question behind both of those, though, is like, what's the layer of truth hovering behind this? Because I'm thinking about the demons and demons didn't fare very well with Jesus. So they were right to be afraid. Mm -hmm. Right. In, in, in every case So this posture of, hey, what I know uh, would cause me to cower in fear to, you know, whatever. And so I don't think we 
I don't want to go into the ditch of saying, well, all fear is necessarily bad or even this kind of like immature, when's God going to crush me? Like to, to recognize that I'm rebelling from God in my sinfulness, that I'm coming up short, that there is a sovereign authority who has a right to crush me uh, in this or, you know, to, to your, your case, Hey, I'm, I'm living out of bounds. I'm consistently, um, errant in the decisions that I'm making. And, uh, you know, I'm questioning, Hey, how is, how is God viewing me? How is God interacting with me? Like these would be, I guess, good and right thoughts for someone t- to have. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, so the demons have the right fear of a conquering King, right? That, that yeah. right at the beginning of Mark, Jesus's first words, Hey, I, the kingdom is here. Yeah. Repent and believe the gospel. Like I'm, I'm bringing it now. Um, so that's right. What, what I think we want is to not be in the camp that the demons are in, right. And have a belief in Jesus. That's, that's strictly from an adversarial conquering King is here. I'm afraid I'm going to fight him you know, and what are you going to do to us? Are you going to send us into these pigs? You're going to banish us, you know, whatever. Um, so we don't want to be there. We don't want to live our lives in an adversarial posture where, Jesus is God. Like he can do what he wants to do. He has the the ultimate authority over um, all death, over all demons, over all wayward, um, rebelling people. Um, and, and the demons knew that better than the people in the crowd knew that. And so they were afraid and rightfully so. Then the crowd kind of as they get to know Jesus, um, how are, how are they different from the demons experience of Jesus? Yeah, it's it, it it is an interesting contrast between the demons and and the crowd. So the demons, they're they're all facts, accurate facts about Jesus, zero wonder, zero amazement. The crowd, they don't have any accurate information about him, but they're blown away about what he's doing and the way he demonstrates authority. But there's no sense in the text that that's kind of heart level or spiritual. So they, they both kind of quote fingers, see Jesus, but they don't see him fully. They don't, they don't have the the clear view of who he is. Yeah. It's, it's harder for me to bring that sense of like astonishment, amazement, wonder, spectacle into 2021 because like, everybody's so desensitized to something being amazing because you have access to all of it. Just go on YouTube, go on wherever, and you can see all kinds of incredible stuff to the point where it's like, okay, everything's incredible. So nothing's incredible. But like for these folks, like nobody's coming to town and doing things that are unbelievable. Like their whole life could go by and nothing out outrageous or unusual would really happen. And then Jesus shows up and People are being healed. Demons are being cast out. Demons are speaking back to Jesus mm. from these people. Yeah. Um, like this is astonishing. Like uh, in the in the truest sense, it's amazing that the crowds are their minds are blown by what's going on here with this guy. How is it that he comes into our our synagogue and teaches not by uh, you mentioned you know just kind of quoting other people's takes on what these passages may have meant. Um, but like, no, with authority, Hey, this is, this is what this means because I know, because I am the word made mm-hmm. flesh here among you 
to, to communicate this stuff. And, um, like you said, like it doesn't indicate any kind of like saving faith in Jesus, but the spectacle, the amazement, the, I want to be around him. I want to know more about him was definitely a, a big aspect of what was going on there. Like, is there, is there a way that you guys can see how that might be experienced today, right? It's not like the YouTube generation, somebody's, you know, wingsuiting off a mountain, like that's amazing. But like Jesus blowing everybody's minds with his authority and presence and, and what he was able to do. Yeah. I don't know that. Yeah. I think you're right in terms of post enlightenment culture, um, really desensitized to the themes of awe and wonder that we would see kind of translating and reverberating into the book of Acts, right? As we see the spread of the church, well, it's these almost um, remnants of, of the exile, right? The, the awe and wonder that God did in the plagues is then carrying over to the birth of the church and everywhere that the church goes as it fans out, well, this awe and wonder accompanies it. I think one sense is we're pretty isolated in the American church, right? I, I wonder as center of gravitation of God's church shifts from places like North America uh, is awe and wonder more indicative of the people of the world as they come in contact, contact with the truths of the gospel uh, than it is with us. And then how, um, yeah, how, how much of that is a result of just post-enlightenment mind that struggles with awe and wonder in any category. And yet, though it might not look like this awestruck amazement at who Jesus is, this um, interest, this kind of vague spirituality, this kind of uh, buffet-like dabbling in the things of God that would say, hey, if this is helpful to me, great. I've seen benefit of this in other people's lives. Good. Um, but the lack of experiential presence with Jesus, which I think would be the, the differentiating variable there, right? Like I'm aware, I'm maybe even aware that this is good for other people, but I haven't tasted of this experience. I haven't placed faith mm-hmm. uh, there personally. I think you can see, uh, particularly in the South, right? You can see... Um, overtones of that even I would think people that can look back on a past experience in their own story and say there was a season of awe and wonder right there was a season of that but now it's just kind of blah for me yeah I was going to say the same thing like there's I think the way that Jesus can amaze and astonish in our context in Greenville South Carolina is you hang out with with believers in the church and everybody kind of gets on cruise control and just going along, going through the motions. And then you encounter somebody that has a real vibrancy in their walk with Jesus. And they're very sensitive to the promptings of, of God's spirit. And they're clearly relying on strength from the father. And that has kind of a, an amazing, astonishing effect on the people around them that hopefully it, that the observation doesn't stop with the person is like, wow, that guy is awesome. But that it goes, it goes the next step to put the spotlight on Jesus to then kind of call us up in that way. Yeah. And in this context, right, you, you have 
real people seeing life change playing out in front of them, like in these acts of healing and transformation. And so I do think it's one of the reasons why conversion is so important in the life of the local church, why, you know, genuine moving the needle in our sanctification. Like we can look, we see this, I saw it this morning on my social media scroll, right? You see somebody post a before and after picture of a weight loss journey and you're like able to look back and say, wow, that's astounding. You were that person and now you're this person. So you suck that out of the life of the church. You remove this contrast community Mm. where we can see this person was this and now they're this. And I think it does kind of zap the awe and wonder out of the life yeah. of the people of God. Yeah. yeah. Do you think some of that has to do like it, the, the typical journey of, of a believer is, is not one that's typically marked by huge bounds of change in short periods of time. Like it can happen. The Lord, Lord can, can work a deliverance from addiction or, or some other like really astounding, um, miraculous life change, but that, kind of what we, what we talk about often is like a long, slow obedience in the same direction that like that, uh, intentional expected incrementalism, like the, the little things of, of moving closer and closer to Christ, growing in sanctification, um, that seeing the benefit of the community of the church. Like this is one thing that because I'm, uh, a lot of the week outside of the community of the church, but building a different kind of community in, in the gym versus community in the church, like the, the kinds of love and support and care and connection that are present in our church are not like what other people are experiencing in other communities. Um, and so it's like easy to take that for granted because we live in the mix and there are people in small groups who are going out of their way to give money, to care for people in their small group or to take care of their kids or to whatever somebody's sick and and caring for things. Uh, that's, that's just not present outside of the church. And I wonder if, because we're in it so much, it's, it's, it is actually astonishing that the group of people who have been getting together in the parking lot get together and then at the, at the cost to their own well being, give to people that they would never know outside of gathering as the church, because Jesus called the church together and these people to these, this place at this time. Like it really is kind of amazing. Like if we uh, kind of work to cultivate a sense of wonder and and marveling at what Jesus is doing in the church, um, because it it is not something that's happening outside of the church. I think I, I I want to like yes and no your premise there. I I agree with the conclusion, the premise of long obedience uh, in the same direction, slow incremental change. I think the challenge to that though is. Um, so many, their, their spiritual transformation happens in this like, um, you know, 18 to 25 year old window, mm-hmm. right. Kind of, uh, around end of high school into college there. And so there's something, um, mythical about that season of life, uh, in that you're, you're developing, you're changing very rapidly, uh, often finding a spouse during that season, perhaps you're making some of the most formative decisions of your life. And you're having these experiences that really peak on the scale of what you're going to have for the remainder of your life, right? It's going to encapsulate it in those years. And you're uh, hearing the gospel like teased out in unique ways and it's landing in your soul and you're experiencing the word of God as a 
coherent unit and seeing Jesus and all the scriptures and you're hearing these teachings for the first time. And so um, I think it, often early in our spiritual formation, there are these um, kind of peak experiences that set some mental categories for us of this is how the next 40 or 50 years should play out. So then we get late 20s, early 30s, and we recognize, well, developmentally, I'm kind of settled in. I've made the decisions of who I'm going to marry, of children, those kind of things, where I'm going to live, my vocation. Life's gotten pretty normal. Like There's a consistent pattern to it, and therefore a lot of those kind of peak experiences aren't happening anymore. Yep. And so then you hear the processing of um, it doesn't feel uh, like I'm as close to God as I once was, or my experience with God isn't the same. And I think a lot of that is like couched in, in our expectations of what is, what is normal. And the hard thing is when you start with such a high, it's almost like romantic relationships, right? When you're dating, pursuing one another, and it starts with this such peak experience. Well, what real romance and love is found in the the post game, right? It's found in the nor. How do we settle in to what it looks like to love each other for the long haul? And I find just people in general really struggle to kind of settle in to what is Christianity faith, my experience with God look like over the long haul? Yeah. 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 The, the deepening of that experience versus the big bang at the start or the clamoring for, I've got to get back to that big bang. Right. Yeah. So I've got to, I got to have that same experience of community that same kind of felt transformation, right? I can see myself grow because they were like real clear sin habits that I was warring against in those first couple of years, and I'm seeing those removed. So it's just like real present for me. I can see growth. I can go to a, you know, go up on the mountain at 1 a.m. with my friends, and we can take a guitar and sing praise songs, and I like feel this emote, like, the, man, this I'm close to God. Mm-hmm. And so then you kind of spend your whole life trying to get back to that experience rather than settling into what life really looks like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that reminds me of C.S. Lewis's uh, Surprised by Joy when he's talking about kind of his spiritual autobiography and like a lot of his life before coming to faith, chasing the highs, mm-hmm. like chasing a sense of wonder, chasing a sense of marvel, going places intentionally to see things, to hopefully get close to God in a sense. I don't know that he would have described it at that point in his life in that way, but that, that kind of sensation versus the, the continued, um, the continued experience of obedience and growth. And like I said, like settling into and carrying weight, um, you know, what, this is getting kind of a field from like the original topic, but it's an interesting question. Like what, what does it look like to do that? Like what are things that I need to do to kind of settle in to that. Like, I, I think one of the things that seems like a natural order of things is the, the voluntarily taking on responsibility, whether it's, it's saying, Hey, I'm going to step into the church and take responsibility for a ministry, for a group, for a person, for a thing. I'm going to step into a marriage relationship as, as God provides and take responsibility for this person and, and the relationship and anything that comes from it. I'm going to step into my work and take responsibility and, and try to do things that are meaningful and matter. Uh, even if my work right now doesn't feel meaningful and, and purposeful, I'm still going to be responsible and carry the weight of it to prepare for the next thing. Like what, what does it look like to practically settle in for the long haul of, uh, you know, faithfully knowing Jesus versus, um, chasing the high. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know that there's a, a silver bullet to to solve that that issue. It seems to be, you know, Matt used the word, a, a mythical season, kind of late teens, early 20s. And, you know, I've just had to tell dozens and dozens of people just out of college that are, they feel like they're um, kind of floating, that they're not, they don't have a grounding, they don't have community. They don't have um, brothers and sisters around them. I'm like, these last four years on campus was make-believe time where with with zero effort, you're 30 hours with close believing friends that are going to support you and love you. And and you're never going to have that again. And so you you just need to to press in to the means of grace that God has given you in in the church and and not simply as a recipient but one that's that's going to give and serve and and pour out and the folks that are able to get get past that are the ones that say all right i understand and and they just they make the decision to look forward and stop looking back hmm. trying to recapture something that wasn't wasn't ever going to be um something they could lay hold of post-college anyway. Yeah. I, I really do think the parallel to human like marriage relationships is pretty, pretty compelling here. I mean, we, you see it all the time. The, the person that's, uh, that's chasing that uh, emotional experiential high of relationship. And so five, seven years into the relationship, when it gets boring, I'm going to pursue, you know, an extramarital relationship or I'm going to pursue something to give me that sense of, buzz that I once had and and we don't want to uh diminish the buzz right that that drive for connection and uh, relationships what got us into this marriage to start with and it was good and um and, and helpful for us but again the the adjustment phase of this is you know, God willing, this is a 40, 50 year marriage that we've embarked on with loving the same person uh, through this time. And that requires just a recalibration of what what is normal, what is good, what are my expectations. It's a conversation I have consistently. Uh, Paul Tripp wrote the marriage book. What did you expect? Premise being most marital conflict in the first five years is built around unmet expectations I think the same could be true in our sanctification, you know, the, that unmet expectations. What is, what is the life of the Lord? What is joy? What is my sense of his presence? What, what does that all feel like and look like? And just the normal ebb and flow of life kind of uh, away from that make-believe season. And I, I do think the things that you said, like uh, leaning into responsibility, I think, you know, a married couple having kids and saying, like, I'm invested uh, in this shared relationship, I think the more we as believers can say, I'm taking spiritual responsibility for somebody else that's moving through that season. And in some ways we live uh, through them, you know, we're experiencing their highs and them coming to an understanding of God's word. And like, as you relive that with somebody else, I think that does something uh, really good and really helpful. Yeah. And then just discipline pursuit, like, this is what we're going to do, not always because we feel like it, but because we know this is what relationships are about. And, and so the, 
the more we can discipline ourselves to engage in, as you mentioned, kind of means of grace in church community and reading the word and spiritual conversations and just play the long game with those things, trusting that over the history of the people of God, um, these disciplines aren't like made up in a vacuum, right? They're, they're the things that we know produce mature, faithful followers of Jesus. And so I've got to say, even if there's a year where I don't really feel like it, like this is, this is God's purposes for me. I'm going to consistently commit to them and walk in them and trust that the outcome is going to be for my good. Yeah, that's good. So thinking of those, uh, kind of categories again, we'll bring it back around so that we have the, the demons knowing Jesus believing, um, because they know accurately who Jesus is. Then we have the the crowd who's astonished and, and our kind of uh, tangential discussion there of like, man, what is what does it look like to chase astonishment, amazement? It's new, it's exciting. And then how do we how do we actually live out a long faith with Jesus? Because these guys in this this snapshot in Luke, they haven't had a chance to know Jesus for forty years. They they just he showed up and it's like, Wow, this is amazing. You the example we gave there, I think that actually does translate really well is you you met the gal, you met the guy of your dreams. Wow. Everything's astonishing. It's all amazing. It feels away. And I want more of that, that experience. And then, you know, we, we get to apply that and live it out long-term. Then the, the third category, those who were coming to be healed. Um, so how, how do they know, how do they believe, how do they engage with Jesus differently from the first two groups? Yeah. So they, they, they've come to know accurately, at least in part, who Jesus is by way of experience. And, you know, Paul's paradigm from Romans 10, that, that when the belief of our heart about Jesus aligns accurately with the confession of our mouth about who Jesus is, then that's kind of the, the way we can know that, that there's salvation. But if those are, are out of whack, then then we're just like the faith of a demon or like the faith of a um, astonished onlooker. And so it, it's it's the one that has dependence, trust, love for Jesus. And they also say, yeah, he's Lord. Yeah. Is, is, is there a simple way <clears throat> that that we could distinguish what that looks like in my life today to say, I can say out loud, Hey, I think Jesus is, is Lord. I think Jesus is God. I've read the Bible. I agree with those statements. I think those are true, but like the, the part that everybody seems to struggle with, right? The cliche of like, I got to get it out of my head and into my heart. Um, what, what does it practically look like for it to, to move 18 inches South? And instead of being just a intellectual ascent, like the demons to be an experiential, um, I know Jesus, not I know about Jesus. Yeah, so I think there, you know, we have the repeated paradigm around the church talking about head, heart, and hands that that we're all inclined to to put emphasis on probably one of those three and de-emphasize or under-emphasize the other areas. So that's where a lot of times we need to, in terms of faith and feelings, I think it's vitally important for Christians to recognize that feelings are important, 
but they're they're not the engine that's driving the train. The feelings it, it's one of the cars in in the line of of train there, but it's not driving the train. And so in in that picture, often our feelings will follow our faith, the mm. the faith the facts that we know about who God is and what Jesus is is up to in the world. And, and sometimes those, those feelings get there and sometimes they don't, but they don't change the facts. So I think that's a, um, a really important paradigm that, that if we get it backwards, then, then that's where we get train wrecks, right? Like if I'm not feeling this way, therefore this, this must be true about God or this, this, thing that I've known about God all these years must actually be a lie because I'm not feeling a certain way. And so that's why I think part of the journey of being a mature and maturing follower of Jesus is that we recognize that there are seasons like where we genuinely begin as one who's been healed. And then there are times when when and we have that that sense of God's goodness shown to us in the gospel and we're experiencing the the love of Jesus and he's so close it's like tangible and then there are other seasons where where we just say like I I know a lot of stuff about Jesus and I'm and I'm feeling nothing mm-hmm. the the right thing for us to do is don't don't stay on the sidelines like if you feel like you you're drifting away don't wait for you don't wait for the feeling to come that then is the motivator for you to to pursue the lord again yeah pursue the lord because that's that's where the satisfaction's found that's where joy is with with Jesus yeah i think the the interesting thing for me in the healing stories in Luke and then again in Acts is how they're they're, the premise of faith is future-oriented. It's future tense. So contrast to the man born blind, Jesus heals, and then he's able to say, you know, I, I don't know it all, but what I do know, I was blind, and now I see. Well, that's past tense affirmation of belief. But here, the the act of bringing the sick to, to Jesus is a is a future-looking. It's a, it, I'm making a, a practical decision in the present that is oriented towards my future trust in who Jesus is, what he will do, so on and so forth. So bad metaphor, trying to externally process something that I haven't thought about before, so it'll probably break down. But I think about uh, an experience with like an all-star athlete. So Sarah and I, I think it was on our honeymoon, actually. We went to a San Francisco Giants game when Barry Bonds was playing. And, uh, you know, this was in the juice era when he was knocking – uh, you know, uh, yeah, like out the, home runs, they're you canoeing know? in the, the bay to, you know, to catch the ball. And like the expectation of bonds coming up to the plate, the entire stadium stops and everybody like leading up to him coming up to the plate is positioning themselves like where they might catch the ball because they know that, that there's someone great getting ready to step up, who consistently does something just awe-inspiring. And that then leads to certain decisions, certain positioning that I'm making in the present. So I wonder, like, what is the translation of that to 
our experience, our future-oriented experience of faith in Jesus that says he's great, he does powerful things, he gives generously to me, he fills my heart with hope or peace or joy, and therefore there's positioning that I'm going to make in, uh, maybe the word is like expectation, anticipation for that, that a lot of the grind of the day is how do I position myself in anticipation for what Jesus might do, right? And, you know, sometimes that's bonds grounds out to first base, right? But, but and that, that's a bad metaphor. Jesus doesn't sure, ground yeah, out to first yeah, base. Sure, just, sure, sure. Sometimes that's the bomb that you were expecting that's amazing. Other times you're watching an all-star at the plate, and this is fascinating. But nonetheless... I'm positioning myself with some level of anticipation for uh, what he is going to do, what he might do. Uh, and that does shape uh, the way that I navigate my day. Yeah, and, and we can kind of repeat the the Piper phrase of, you know, God, Jesus is doing a thousand things in your life right now, and you might be aware of three of them. Mm. And, and so you're thinking Jesus grounded out to first because this thing that I wanted to have happen didn't happen. This relationship fell apart. This thing, this thing, this thing. But you can't see necessarily the bigger picture of, of the greater good, whatever it is that God is at work doing in those things that behind the scenes to our experience are really moving us to glory in, in the end, right? The, I think here's a great uh, pattern for our thought is what form does the counsel we take to others give? So like um, thinking about who do I expect to deliver joy, peace, hope? calm for anxiety, worry, whatever the question is. So if we're interacting with other people that are encountering that, like are we the kind of people that are bringing our lame and sick to Jesus with the expectation that he's the one that's going to be the answer to this? Or do we find ourselves kind of reflectively giving all kinds of tips of behavior modification Mm. or techniques or, well, that, that prompt, that's probably actually indicative of what our own hearts do, right? Because right. out yep. of the heart, the, the mouth speaks. That's so right. if the counsel we're giving to others is you need to go to all sorts of other things other than Jesus to address whatever these issues are that are bubbling in your heart. But that's probably a direct line to where we go. Uh, are we anticipating that Jesus can bring healing, hope, joy, peace, those mm-hmm. kind of things? Yeah, that's fantastic. So then let's just kind of summarize and maybe put together some takeaways from these things. So um, the demons believe because they have accurate, true knowledge of who Jesus is. And for them, that's terrifying because they know he's conquering king and they're opposed, right? But uh, so we can take away, I think, from them, if there's a good thing about the demons' belief in Jesus, it's that they have accurate knowledge of who he is. And so it, we want to we want to know Jesus accurately as he's revealed in Scripture as he's revealed in the in the church, as people uh, are hands and feet and and experiential, uh, we can experience his love and provision, means of grace through them, um, and and see with gospel glasses all the good things that God is doing, whether it's in creation, in nature, in relationship, uh, in the story of history, and how God is bringing things to uh, a one day resolution. Um, so we can we can know accurately. And uh, we don't want to be like the demons in that we don't want to be 
opposed right to God and, and therefore need to fear conquering King because he's going to win. Um, like the crowds or maybe even yeah. just like thinking about it with Jesus, like a mathematical equation. Like if I just plug in X, Y, and Z, then I get salvation. Cold, hard facts. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Then the, the second group, the crowd that the astonishment, the amazement, the, um, wonder that they had towards Christ. Like we, we have the warning of, Hey, don't, don't try to go back to being 18 and in a college environment and these emotional highs and just chemically in your body, you're going to feel your biggest emotions when you're a teenager that you'll ever feel in your whole life. For the most part, everything is a big emotion. And so those things do leave kind of lasting impacts and marks and, and grooves in you that you're like, man, I remember when I used to feel when we would sing these songs or this or that, and I would cry every time I went to church and all these, these feeling experiences, instead of chasing that kind of amazement that we would kind of have a deepening sense of wonder and marvel and awe at the work of God in the world, the work of God in us, that, that Jesus would come at all is, is Mm -hmm. unbelievable. And that, that he would, as the perfect son of God, uh, take on the full wrath of God Mm. for me, who, who is, uh, in the camp of the demons before Jesus does something in my life that I'm an, I'm an active rebel fighting against God. Um, and that he would sacrifice the perfect lamb for that. Uh, like the astonishment that should be there is something that we can kind of make routine old hat. And so like settling into the truths and, and deepening the, the wonder at those truths, um, I think is understanding our own sin. Yeah. And that, that part of the equation. Yeah. The further down you go into those things that the more the glory and grace of God expands, uh, as we become more and more aware of both. And then as the third group, like we, we would want to, I mean, we need to experience healing in, in myriads of ways, whether it's physical healing, but the, the gap to be bridged between us and God, the, the chasm that, uh, exists because of sin and because of our rebellion, that he has bridged that gap, that we want to experience that in a real way. Um, and that we, we, as Matt said, I think that the attitude of our heart, the direction of our heart, when we're experiencing brokenness is a good indicator of, of that, that mm-hmm. we, do we go to Christ? Do we point others to Christ or do we, uh, go to self-help books or to, uh, you know, whatever motivational speaker or my counselor, therapist, whatever, before I go to Jesus, um, you know, not that those things can't be means of grace. There can be great habits and disciplines and practices that you could do. Hey, set your alarm clock 10 minutes earlier so that you can X, Y, or Z. Great. But if it's Christ's oriented, that's the the main kind of ticker there. Um, any, any other kind of concluding thoughts or, or bringing those things together, ways that we can apply and use this this week? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I just, I think, um, going a few minutes back to the, the idea of, uh, long, slow, continual change, you know, I, I think we, we should have our minds set that that's typically how God works. That's, um, you know, the end of second Corinthians chapter three, that we're being changed from one degree of glory to another. Hmm. And, uh, you know, if, if I'm going one direction and I want to 
turn and go the other direction, 180 degrees of turn is a lot <laughs> when, yeah. you, when you think about it one degree at a time. And uh, what's really exhilarating to me is, is that I, I'm well aware of how many remaining degrees I have. Hmm. But, but as I, as I walk with the Lord and, and see uh, God revealing himself in scripture, he's just getting um, more competent, more sovereign in, in my eyes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that I can have confidence that when he says, I'm going to do it, I'm going to finish it. I know he'll do it. Yeah. It's a good word. I think Hugh models in these three categories, just a really good way to read this kind of center section of the book of Luke. We, we did the seven errors that the second error is a backward facing error asking like, what did the text mean to its original audience? And when we ask the question, people immediately think, well, I got to find a commentary and kind of dig through what's, and I try to just help people say like, just put yourself in the story as a character in the story. Mm -hmm. Like, live the story we, we read the bible as americans with our brains uh but reading the bible with our senses like being provoked by the totality of the story so coming you know what would it have been like to be the leper that jesus healed what would it have been like to be these first disciples that jesus called how would you read the bible through the lens of that experience and i think that gives us some some sense of um tangibility to, to the Bible that protects us from kind of commentary intellectual distance from the text. But these stories, particularly, you know, look four, five, and six, they're, man, they're emotive, they're jarring, they're personal, they're stories of life transformation of like actual individuals. So as I'm reading these texts, I don't want to distance myself to uh, these kind of esoteric truths about theological jargon, but really like, no, man, Jesus is bringing real transformation to a human life. And, um, I want to read the Bible that way. And I want to experience Christianity that way. Like it's not a set of propositional truths mm -hmm. first and foremost, but it's of a real God who brings real transformation to real people. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a, that's a great place to wrap. So thanks guys for joining all you guys who are listening. Uh, thanks for, for checking in and, uh, we hope that this has been encouraging and, uh, gives you an opportunity to kind of dig into the text and, and to the Sunday experience and find new ways to unpack and, and live out, uh, what we're trying to do each week. So hopefully we'll have these out uh, closer to weekly. So we get a little extra commentary on, uh, each, each teaching block each Sunday and uh, we would love to hear from you. If you have questions or topics that you would like to hear covered, uh, then we would be happy to speak into some of those things as well as we're moving forward.